Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. In 1995, Thomas Cahill wrote a book that would become his most read and his most popular. Cahill died this past year. He was born in the Bronx, the son of devout Catholic parents, an incredible student, and for a time prepared to become a Jesuit priest. A year in seminary changed his mind, and that happens sometimes. He married instead. He and his wife Susan were together till the day that he died, running a business together, raising two children, both writing books. That most epic book, published in 95, was rejected by half a dozen publishing companies before Doubleday acquired it. And since then, it has sold millions upon millions of copies. It's called this, How the Irish Saved Civilization. And I recommend the book to you, even though the Academy tends to scoff at it as an oversimplification of complex history. I think Cahill simplified on purpose to make this book approachable and accessible to everyday readers. Because frankly, let's be honest, ancient and medieval history to everyday readers is just plain boring or painful. Most people would rather sit through a root canal than read about medieval history. So he did us all a service by introducing ancient Irish tenacity and spirituality to the world. I first read this book more than 20 years ago and was so taken with it, I quoted Cahill a couple of times in my doctoral dissertation. And his basic premise is this. When the Roman Empire fell, Europe collapsed into chaos. That much is a fact. All the scientific, literary, educational, and historical advancements of the centuries was lost on the European mainland as the formerly unified world splintered into warring factions, each group burning down and burning out their enemies and destroying everything in the process. Europe descended into the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, a period of time that's not called the Dark Ages by accident. It was dark, a period of ignorance, superstition, almost zero knowledge of medicine or basic biology. It was anti-science, anarchy, Barbarian invasion, bloodshed, disease. The one shining light on the farthest edge of Western Europe was Ireland. Thomas Cahill contends that while Europe locked itself in the dark, little Christian communities in Ireland, largely planted there by St. Patrick and those who followed him, were salvaging all that had once been good and worthy. 
Their Celtic Christianity had not been associated with the Roman Empire. It wasn't a colonial convert or face the sword spirituality. As Cahill says correctly, words in my dusty dissertation, Ireland is unique in religious history for being the only land into which Christianity was introduced without bloodshed. It was a peace-loving, peace-building movement rooted in with the common people. The Irish valued education and open-mindedness. They copied all of those books and writings that would have been lost forever. They maintained the advancements of science and medicine. They revived classical culture, dosed with their own Celtic traditions, and in time, exported it back to Europe. Here is one of Cahill's most quoted passages. If there are no books, there is no civilization. Wherever they went, the Irish brought with them their books, many unseen in Europe for centuries. Where they went, they brought their love of learning and their skills in bookmaking. In the bays and valleys of their exile, they reestablished literacy and breathed new life into the exhausted culture of Europe. And that is how the Irish saved civilization. And you thought that God invented whiskey on the seventh day so that the Irish wouldn't take over the world, right, didn't you? Thomas Cahill, George Hunter, Peter Berger, and others make the same point. Literacy, learning, curiosity, open minds, open hearts. This is what pulled Europe out of its darkest age. None of this would have happened without the Irish. None of this would have happened without Irish community. And this competency just didn't happen. One guy over in Dublin who loved to read, or a nun up in Belfast who knew how to make books, a farmer in Galway who could write. No, it was a communal thing. Groups of people were reading together, eating and drinking together, learning together. And now the academy can accuse me of oversimplifying things here, but I'm going to make this proposal. Irish book clubs save the world. Have you ever been a part of a book club? It's a reading group, right? Some get together around a single book to read. Other groups meet more or less perpetually, moving from title to title. They go and they read a book and they come back to discuss it. Somebody says, oh, I just loved it. I couldn't get enough. Another person says, I hated it. I couldn't finish it. And in the process of this discussion and reading books, there's Sometimes cake and coffee and sometimes dinner and sometimes brunch and sometimes wine or beer or both. And book clubs are this beautiful example of a healthy tribalism. We are our own people. We are doing our own thing. We are doing something unique, special unto us, but you're welcome to join us and to come in and to experience what we're experiencing. Read with us. Drink with us, eat with us, be with us. That's how you save civilization. Because it's more than eating and drinking, reading and talking, laughing and crying together. It's that together part that makes it work. 
It is the community that is built, developed, and maintained over time that binds people together in such a way that small groups of closely knitted friends from a myriad of backgrounds can become much closer than even blood relatives. You don't get to pick your family, but you do get to pick your friends. Learn together. Share your backgrounds. Become close Share your joys, your fears, age, and complain about aging together. Give your broken hearts over together. Celebrate those high mountaintop experiences together. And you just might find a way of saving yourself. You might save your town. You might save your country. You might save civilization itself. The Irish, all those community, all those centuries ago, were putting into practice, knowingly, I think, because they learned it from St. Patrick, St. Bridget, St. Finian, and others. What we have heard read in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Anna, as usual, and without prompting, gave the context of the reading perfectly. It is a description of the earliest practices of the earliest Christian community, even before they were known as Christians. Acts 2 stuff is just on the heels of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. That is why the lectionary puts it here in the church calendar just weeks after Easter. What did that first church look like? What did they do that ended up saving Christianity? That allowed it to expand from just this little cultish beginning into something that could thrive, come into its own, and be shared around the world? Well... You heard the reading, it's just a few things. One, the apostles' teachings. Two, fellowship. Three, breaking of bread. Four, giving to those in need. Starting to sound like a book club, if you ask me. The apostles' teaching, what was that exactly? Well, this is decades before anything that even resembles the Christian scriptures would emerge. And it's centuries centuries before the New Testament would become a thing. The apostles took the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and using Jesus as their interpretive lens, read it as a document pointing the world toward the fulfillment of all things in this Jesus of Nazareth. It was a Christ-soaked, Jesus-centered, thoroughly Jesus-immersed course of study. That was their book club. The the Apostles' Creed gets right at it. Now, the Apostles didn't necessarily write it, but it is the oldest confession we have outside of Jesus is Lord. And all you graduates of confirmation class had to memorize it, I know. The most readable version in North America goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's enough to keep every Christian community I know busy for all of their existence. I don't know why we felt compelled just to keep adding things. I think that's a pretty good summary. 
And it's the best summary we have of what the apostles were teaching. The second thing, fellowship. And I'm going to take everything else under this heading. Fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer, giving to those in need. The Greek word for all of this is one word. The word is koinonia. It means to share. It means to hold things in common. To be partners. And while it's easy to think of breaking of bread here as maybe the communion or the Eucharist, that's not at all what is implied. It means that they shared their meals together. And they were grateful for the food and for the company. Verses 46 and 47 are commentary and further explanation. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. I'll return to the Irish. There is a Gaelic word that describes this kind of friendship. It's called anam kora. It's a compound word from the Celts. Anam, it means soul, yourself, your true essence. And kara means friend. It is sometimes wrongly translated to mean soulmate in the romantic sense. But that is not quite right. The ancient Irish fathers and mothers said that the soul friend could be male or female, lay or clergy, old or young, and it wasn't confined to a single individual. And Anam Kura could be anyone or ones who understand you. One who gets you. One who travels with you. One who understands the journey that you are on. It is that person or those people in your life who truly know you. Because you have invited them into your life and into your heart, so to speak. Anamkura was the exact word the ancient Irish used to describe Christian community and discipleship. A person would show up at a monastery or come into a community and say, Huh, I wonder what all this Christian stuff is all about. More or less, that's what they would say. And so rather than being sat down and given a sermon... The community would say, oh, we're glad you're here. Come on in. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are your feet sore? You need a place to sleep? Do you need some new clothes? And they would extend this radical hospitality to the visitor. The visitor might stay. The visitor might leave. The visitor might leave and come back. But if this person stayed, interesting enough, they discovered that they started believing all the same things that these Christians were believing. Because they were soaked in the community of that and would eventually join that community. Not because they had prayed the sinner's prayer. Not because they had ever heard of the four spiritual laws. Not because they had read the book of Romans. But because they saw Christian community and the way of Jesus lived out practically before them. And in the 21st century, that is still the thing that works. Not our sermons. I've spent... More than 30 years preaching sermons. And those don't matter as much as the way I actually live my life. Can you say amen? We're dying of sermons. And books. And ought to's and how to's. Is there anybody that's going to live it? Rather than just say it. I hear this question sometimes. And it's it's a good question. How, How do people without faith in God, make it in this world of trouble? Now, that's a good question, but it's, it's actually not one 
that I ask regularly. Now, you can call me, call me a humanist, but I think that the human spirit, natural resiliency, is pretty darn strong. My head is bloody but unbowed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is sort of the innate resistance of being human. We do not go gentle into that good night. We have a way of raging, raging against the dying of the light. It's natural. Plus, people can make God such an abstraction, such a cold and distant concept, that even if they believe in God, there's not much there to believe in except maybe a shadow. I can see clearly and easily how people, even without faith in God, make it through troubles and heartaches. I have enough brave and persistent agnostic friends to verify this. Here is my question. How do people without community make it in this world of trouble? That's the question I have. Don't get me wrong. I believe in God, but God has never, ever, magically appeared to me while I had been standing next to a coffin grieving the loss of a loved one. Not one time. God hasn't physically kept me company in the midst of an endless night where I've cried my eyes out. God hasn't shown up when I've been suicidal, sick, despondent, lonely, or lost. But people who know God have. Are you hearing me? They have been there at that casket with casseroles in hand. Most of them green bean. What is that? Somebody dies in the south and we have to make a green bean casserole. They've cried with me. They have shown up not saying a word. They have been there nonetheless. And it really makes sense of Jesus' words. He said to his disciples, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And all those disciples say together, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, when you do this for even the, the, the smallest, least, most insignificant person, you are doing it as if you were doing it for me. There is something about being with those in need that both reaches out to God because God is in those who suffer. And at the same time, brings God's presence into the world. It's not magic. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's this Christ-centered community. It's the friendship of the soul. And I hope over the years we have created a little bit of that here. I hope you will find some of that in your life. Formally, in a small group, informally, just those that you join in your journey. Connectedness, koinonia, community, partnership, anamkura. It goes by many names, but you know it when you find it. It is life-saving, civilization-making stuff. I've been telling a few friends of late uh, that earlier this month we had a, a triple celebration at our house. It was our youngest son, Braden, who turned 20. I have a picture for you here while I talk. Our youngest son, Braden, turned 20. Our son, Bryce, turned 24 less than a week later. And our surrogate son, Hunter Bell there in uniform, who lived with us for a number of years, 
graduated from AIT at Fort Benning. He came home for a few days before heading off to Fort Bliss in El Paso. Bryce will leave next week for Fort Carson. And while we had everyone together in one place except for Blaze, we had this double birthday party for the sons and a celebratory dinner for Hunter. And, you know, I started asking him what they want. What do you want to do? We are we, going to just the family go out and eat dinner? What do you want to do? And they always say the same thing. Oh, no, Dad, you've, 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 got, a, you've got a grill, and we've got to invite our friends. I'm like, okay, we can, we can do that. How many, how many friends are we talking about? My knees shook at the public's cash register. <laughs> and my credit card company called to see if it was fraud being committed when I bought nearly 15 pounds of filet mignon. Oh, it gets better. Next picture. Look at Bryce in the middle. Look at that face as he's stuffing it in. Anyway, this is just part of the party. So I'll go to grilling. Cindy's got a tub of macaroni and cheese the size of a sauna tub, you know, on the stove. Baked potatoes in the oven, salad, drinks. And here's the thing you got to watch about young adults after they turn 21, 24. They don't just come eat your food. They come drink your booze. Look at that table. There's booze there. Anyway, anyway. So we're cooking. And every time I turned around, there was another kid standing there with a plate. Hey, Mr. Ronnie, good to see you again. What? What was your name again? Good to see you. And out they would go to the garage and eat. I knew it was getting desperate. And so there was like one steak left. And I hid it in a Tupperware container with a little macaroni and cheese and a baked potato and a salad. And I hid it behind the milk over by behind the, the baking soda where no kid will ever look, right? I get up the next morning. The refrigerator has been raked through. And I realized that my hidden Tupperware plate is out of joint from where it was first placed, and I open it up, and the only thing left is a half of a baked potato, and whatever monster ate it all put the half potato back into the refrigerator in the container. We never had a bite. Not one. Now, I like to fuss about all that, but it really didn't bother me. You know why? It was a worthy celebration with beloved people. These are the boys that have passed in and out of my house, half of them living with us for months at a time, 15 years in and out of our house. These are the friends to my boy's soul. So they're the friends of my soul, and they are welcome in my house. They all had what William Miller called refrigerator rights. <laughs> Somebody comes to your house, knocks on your door. You go to the door and it's a stranger. They come into your house. They start making a sandwich out of your refrigerator. They open up a Coca-Cola and start drinking it. You're going to remove them or have someone remove them. But if your best friend comes over, walks in, helps himself to dinner, pops a cold one because he knows where you keep them all, that's a completely different thing that's happening because some people in your life have refrigerator rights. And if there is a synonym for koinonia and anamkura in this world, I want it to be that. There are people in our life that we are able to welcome in. They know us in a way. We know them in a way that no one else can. They become our community. They become a force, a strength. They become even this. They put the flesh and bones on God himself and come into our lives. And that kind of community 
can still save the world. And that kind of community is what this country and our society needs more than all of our sermons and our talks and our voting.